0: Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today, Chief Robert Louis and I will be discussing the management and control of First Nations land, with particular focus on the framework agreement on First Nations land management. Chief Louie is the chief of the West Bank First Nation. He is the chairman of the First Nations Land Advisory Board since 1989 and a member of the Order of Canada. Welcome to Fair Talk, Chief Louie.
1: Thank you very much, Brady. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I want to begin just by just mentioning something that's on the Land Advisory Board website and have you kind of discuss it. And there's a statement there that's very powerful, and it says, for the first time in the history of First Nations, we'll gain a window of opportunity to have the power as a nation to manage its reserves, lands, and resources and eliminate the bureaucracy of justice and Indian affairs. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, it's
1: extremely important for First Nations across this country that First Nations be recognized with the inherent right to manage their own lands and resources. And for us, this land management process and the implementation of land codes just does exactly that. It recognizes the jurisdiction It recognizes that First Nations are the lawmakers on their own lands, that they have the power to make laws over their lands and their resources. And that's fundamentally important. And it is the first time in the history of Canada that such an accomplishment has occurred. First Nations were historically self-governing before Europeans came to Canada. And now, with land codes and with the frame agreement uh, initiative, it recognizes that First Nations, again, have the jurisdiction to uh, look after their lands and their resources.
0: Okay, I think there, there's two big terms that we'll probably use a bit interchangeably, but I, I wouldn't mind if you could just unpack them a little bit. There's the Framework Agreement, and then there's the First Nations Land Management Act. The Framework Agreement, of course, is comes into being in 1996, and the Land Management Act is in 1999, I believe. Talk to me a little bit about the difference between those and how they came into being.
1: Well the framework agreement is uh, a government to government agreement that was negotiated by the First Nations and with Canada and that framework agreement uh, back in the 1996 time frame at the time of signing sets forth principles that recognizes First Nations uh, to have the inherent right to, to do such things as manage their lands and resources uh, it talks about principles to protect lands so that reserve lands cannot be sold uh, it recognizes that um, that, uh, that third-party interests uh, are going to be protected, principles of, of that nature. And it's a fundamental document that set forth the strategy and set forth the uh, process so that government could eventually pass its legislation. And that legislation was passed in 1999, the First Nation Land Management Act. So by Canada passing that legislation, it ratified the Framework Agreement. Now, what is unique about the Framework Agreement and the First Nation Land Management Act is, is very simple. It says and it recognizes that uh, unilateral changes cannot be made without the consent of the other party. And that's fundamentally important from a First Nation perspective, especially uh, when we're looking at um, how laws are, are developed and the negotiations that took place to put forth this whole initiative. And that's very, very important. And it's very unique uh, in Canada.
0: The process leading up to the framework agreement is quite interesting. It's uh, something that's emphasized in discussions uh, of the First Nations Land Management Act. The the West Bank uh, First Nation was one of the original signatories. Um, What was that process? Well,
1: in the early 1990s and even uh, going back to the late 1980s, um, the, there was a, a movement by First Nations that we had to see the recognition of the inherent right of First Nations recognized. And uh, we had the Constitution that was passed uh, prior to that. It spoke of Section 25 and Section 35 in that Constitution. To, to, it spoke of that inherent right to First Nations, but it wasn't implemented and this was a very serious contention by first nations and when government looked at uh, uh and it was at about the time of the change in government it was uh, it was an election process in the in the uh, early 1990s that led to the then um liberal government who wanted to come into power they said Two First Nations in their background, um, in, in their election process, saying that we would want to have First Nations recognized with certain inherent rights. And so we capitalized on that. Our process was, well, let's do that then. To do that, we needed to get ourselves out of the Indian Act. So we worked with the uh, government when it became government, and uh, we negotiated the Frank Agreement, And that really was the starting point to say that, yes, there is a process, and if government says that uh, they would support it, then let's see the reality of it. And so the reality of it was the French agreement and the eventual passage of the First Nation Land Management Act legislation. And of course, since then, we have now First Nations who have passed land codes, who are now Uh, uh, self-governing to the extent that they can now manage their lands and their resources.
0: How many First Nations have opted into the framework?
1: Well, right now we have 37 First Nations who have actually uh, become operational, that have passed land codes and are fully operational. We have 25 that are in the developmental phase today, And we have a total of about 83 First Nations on the waiting list to uh, become involved. So uh, when we add up all those figures, it boils down to about one in six First Nations in Canada are either involved or want to be involved in the land management initiative.
0: Now, what are the steps if a First Nation wants to basically enter into the framework agreement what are the steps by which that would be done? So I want to talk in a minute uh, about the Indian Act because I think that's important. But if you wanted to move out of the Indian Act and into the framework agreement, what generally are the steps that a First Nations would undertake?
1: Well, the First Nation that uh, is interested in this process, first off, it has to have a genuine interest. And that interest will normally and usually comes from the council of the First Nation – uh, it has interest. It's heard of the land management initiative through one process step or another. It says and it feels that, yes, this is something that could work for our community. So that First Nation uh, would then uh, look at passing a band council resolution to set the process, to say, we have interest. We, uh, we would like to become involved. We have interest here. Uh, accept our resolution uh, saying that we have that interest. It's a sign that we wish to proceed. Now, in the recent years the last couple of years, the Government of Canada has said well that 's fine, but now we have to go through a, through a process you 're going to have to fill out some some application forms and uh, let 's uh, take a look at all of the uh, various things that uh, have to now be considered are you in third party management, for example?" Uh, Do you have economic development needs? Uh, Do you have any environmental issues or or matters of serious concern? Are you in litigation with Canada? Questions of that that nature. Then Canada, once it has that uh, application, will then uh, make a decision. It has the uh, control, if you will, to accept or reject a First Nation now coming into the process. If it accepts that First Nation, then that First Nation is uh, recognized that, yes, you will now have an opportunity to participate when the funds and when time permits. So recently, in the spring of uh, 2012, the Ministry of Indian Affairs accepted um, to have an adhesion of First Nations, uh, another group. 18 uh, new First Nations from coast to coast were then agreed upon to enter into the land management process. So that opened the doors for those 18 First Nations. So they're now in the developmental phase of their, uh, of their land code development. We still have many other First Nations who are waiting. So uh, you can appreciate that costs monies to have First Nations in the developmental process. Canada has to set aside those monies and has to budget it. And right now, uh, we're under certain budget constraints, even though that uh, we have KPMG studies and studies of that nature that suggest and support the fact that if a First Nation becomes operational, we can show and demonstrate through past history and review of the economic findings that that First Nation is going to uh, bring a return to the investment into that First Nation going into the developmental phase. And it's been estimated at least 10 times the return on investment uh, by Canada investing into the First Nations to support them to become operational. Once they become operational, 10 times the return on investment. And those uh, investment returns grow every year.
0: Do the First Nations vote on whether they want to accept the newly developed land codes? How is the community participation in this process? The community is
1: very directly involved. Um, to get into the process is one thing. Then the First Nation, you know, once it's uh, gained entry into the developmental phase, then it has to go through an internal process of ratification by its members of their land code. So the land code is the, is the laws that the community sets that follows the principles of the framework agreement and follows the legislation. So that has to all be put together, and the community is involved in that process uh, step by step, both on reserve and off reserve. Any First Nation at a minimum who is 18 years of age uh, and and older and competent to vote is eligible to be involved. So the First Nation community deals with all of its community members, reaches out to uh, everyone of that voting age and is able to vote, and says, well, let's uh, let's now make a decision. Do we do a majority vote or we uh, ratification vote? Uh, that community has to decide. But the fact is that every First Nation member of that of that community has the right to vote and is encouraged to vote. And that First Nation uh, community uh, must provide all of the information that's necessary for that individual member that's going to vote to make that informed decision. So if it votes, if that community votes yes, then uh, in effect you will have a, a ratified land code. If it rejects the land code vote, then of course uh, there is non non-entry into the operational phase.
0: Now, I think many of our listeners will be less familiar with the reasons why a First Nation might want to move and develop its own land code um, instead of following the land codes set forward in the Indian Act. I'd really appreciate it, and I think it would be really helpful. Could you just step back and discuss the Indian Act and why that constrains First Nations in a number of ways, in- including maybe uh, um, economic development?
1: Well, first I should clarify that the Indian Act, that legislation does not allow for land codes uh, to take place. What the Indian Act does and has done so historically is uh, there are basically 34 sections in the Indian Act that deal with uh, one form of administration over lands and resources. The fact is that the Indian Act provides that the Ministry of Indian Affairs, the Governor General, the Department of Indian Affairs has all of the powers and controls over the First Nation lands and resources. Yes, First Nations can pass certain bylaws, but a bylaw is a subset of laws that exist with Canada through the Department of Indian Affairs. So there is no inherent right that's recognized. If, for example, a First Nation says, look, we need to have a dog barking law, a bylaw, Isiori could pass that bylaw in in the uh, chambers of a council, but that council must submit it to Indian Affairs for their approval. So it's not ratified or approved unless the Department of Indian Affairs says it can be ratified. This is totally different from a land code. A land code is, uh, is, uh, is such that it recognizes the First Nation as the lawmaker. It has a jurisdiction without seeking permission of the Department of Union Affairs, Minister, or anyone else. It has the power to do things that it's necessary to manage its lands and resources. And those powers are very, very extensive. For example, how uh, developments take place, how leases are, are, are registered. How deep you put the water lines and the sewage lines? What are the building code restrictions? How is it going to be developed? How is the process going to take place as far as the lawmaking? Is there going to be first, second, and third readings in the passage of laws? All of those matters that are pertinent to government falls into the hands of the community. So it makes the community the decision maker, the jurisdictional body who will determine the affairs, of the First Nation as it affects its reserve lands and resources. So that is absolutely total differentiation between the Indian Act and how it's administered and how a First Nation would act with its land code in place.
0: So we're discussing the Indian Act, and just to be clear, the Indian Act and the federal government doesn't currently allow First Nations to basically self-govern with respect to land. Am I understanding that correct? Correct.
1: That's absolutely correct. The Indian Act, the way it was developed back in the 1860s, uh, 1870s, and amended from time to time, strictly recognizes the authorities of, of the government of Canada as represented by the Governor General or the Minister of Indian Affairs or his or her agents to make the decisions over the affairs of the First Nation. The First Nation has certain capacities, uh, uh, that have been allowed under the Indian Act to make certain bylaws. But those bylaws, for example, must be approved by Canada through the Department of Indian Affairs. So, in effect, there is no self-government recognition, no inherent right that's recognized by First Nations. First Nation peoples are seen really as wards of the government. They are seen to be communities that must be supported by government, and that includes all of the affairs and the decision-making. So there is a complete difference between the Indian Act process and the land code and land management process that we're currently discussing.
0: Under the framework agreement, does the land still, though, remain under federal protection?
1: Yes, it does. With the land code in place, the First Nation chiefs at the time of inception of the French Agreement had agreed and Canada agreed with those First Nations that the lands would remain what's referred to as section 9124 lands. That's 9124 of the Constitution of Canada. So it, it really recognizes the federal domain. And so the First Nation, uh, work within that federal domain. The provincial government has no lawmaking capacity on a reserve insofar as lands and resources are concerned and that was the wishes of the first nations at that time in the mid-1990s and it remains the wishes of the first nations today so it's very clear that the 9124 jurisdiction is the process that's been supported by the majority of first nations in canada almost at 100 percent level
0: if you enter into the framework agreement, can the land be sold to members outside the First Nation, or are there are certain rules that the framework agreement requires of all First Nations land codes?
1: Well, the individual First Nation has a choice to do certain things as far as how it uh, sells or leases its lands. It can do so internally, but one thing is very, very clear. Reserve lands as such cannot be sold uh, uh, to diminish the reserve land size. So that was a concern that was expressed by First Nations at the Assembly of First Nations level. It's been expressed uh, throughout this country from time to time because in the past, First Nations have had things like expropriations take place, roadways, hydro lines, uh, seaways, uh, you name it, uh, lands cut off from their reserve lands. And so this process, the fundamental process that's recognized and the principle that's recognized is that lands cannot be diminished in size. So as such, they cannot be sold to anyone that's a a non-member of that First Nation. It can, however, be leased, which allows for economic development, allows for interest to be registered and protected, and allows for the economy to proceed on the First Nation. But that's the fundamental difference, and it's a concern that was looked at in places like the United States, where in the past, First Nations or tribes in the, in the United States were allowed to sell off portions of their reserve lands to, to raise money for certain purposes. Here, lands cannot be sold to diminish the reserve land size.
0: With the land codes that have been adopted, is there a significant variation amongst the um, First Nations in terms of their land codes, or, or are they relatively similar?
1: Well, they're unique in the sense that there is no two First Nations that have identical land codes. There's always variations and changes. For example, some First Nations may choose to have lands committees, That will be involved in the lawmaking process. It has to go through that committee and the committee makes the recommendations and that's how laws uh, proceed and how laws may be administered with that involvement of a First Nation committee. Other First Nations may decide that, no, we do not need committees once we have a land code in place, we have the, the process in place. Uh, First Nations may act much like, let's say, municipalities, where you have, let's say, a director of lands who will make that decision that will keep the politics separate from the government and uh, matters proceed. So every First Nation has a variation in one form or another. Some will have historic lands that it needs to have protected for various religious purposes or cultural purposes, and certain lands may have different uh, uh, statuses to the extent that well they may not be certificate of possession lands but they are they have a, a recognized ownership level by certain individuals and it has a method to allow for lands to be mortgaged through leases so every first nation is is slightly different some first nations have band lands in common where that is a total reserve there is no individual recognized lands it's it's lands held in common by every member of that community other communities have a mixture. So there's reasons for the uniqueness of every First Nation land code.
0: You mentioned certificates of possession. Sometimes I think about you know three primary sets of rights on First Nations. I wouldn't mind you kind of commenting on certificates of possession, leases, and customary rights. What are the kind of the differences between those?
1: Well, let's take it from this perspective. A certificate of possession first is an instrument that is referred to quite often that recognizes that an individual member has certain beneficial rights that pertain to the land. And it's a form of title, if you will, that says that that First Nation has that in their possession. And certain First Nations will allow 100% of the revenue proceeds from a land lease, for example, to go to that individual. Some communities will say, no, a percentage goes to the band in common. The remaining balance goes to the individual. So there are different interests that might pertain to that instrument. So really, it's an instrument to recognize the rights that pertain to the wishes of of the community. So a lease is an instrument that allows for mortgages, let's say, banks to take the mortgage on that particular lease and say, this is either for housing purposes or it's for Developmental purposes, and it recognizes a form without losing the land, but having a time frame set to that land where the rights are set for a particular term and a particular purpose to allow for loans and for developments to take place. It protects third party interests if they wish to, say, live on lands and live on First Nation lands and to have a valid instrument that is recognized by banks and, and other financial institutions. So the customs vary, of course, from one First Nation to another. Customs of land use, uh, there may be certain lands set aside strictly for the customs of the First Nations to recognize uh, things like uh, graveyards or particular events that take place. And These lands are always going to be protected. So there's variations in, in all of that.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit now about economic development. There's obviously a number of reasons why, and you've mentioned them, why First Nations might want to adopt the framework, um, including things like the right to self-governance. But one area that's always interested me is with respect to land. Is that you know, land is a factor of production. It's a way of generating wealth and transacting land. Requires secure property rights. It also requires that the transactions costs, that's the search and information costs associated with ensuring a transfer of land, aren't uh, prohibitive. And this is an issue that I believe the Framework Agreement sets out to address. In 1999, when the First Nations Land Management Act was being passed, the Minister of Indian Affairs and Northern Development said something to the effect that this means that First Nations will no longer have to turn to me for their approval. They will have the opportunity to move quickly when economic opportunities arrive or when partners approach them. How does the First Nations Land Management Act or the Framework Agreement reduce these costs? How does it allow First Nations to act more quickly?
1: Well, the land code and the land management process that is uh, adopted by the First Nation allows that First Nation to take advantages of things like economic development potential really at the speed of business. And by speed of business, I mean that there is no regulatory red tape that and approvals that the Department of Union Affairs is required to do. For example, what the Minister of Union Affairs and Senate uh, members of, uh, have commented on through various hearings is that, and they recognize that there is a process for the First Nation that operates under the Indian Act that has to go through step by step approval. And that step by step approval involves various regions. For example, in British Columbia, the Vancouver region has to involve the regional director. It goes through a lands process. That particular process then reports to the headquarters offices in Ottawa. They then make determinations there. Department of Justice is involved and it's kicked over to surveys. Where you have the natural resources involvement. And so you have, have a very cumbersome process of approvals. Sometimes it's granted. Sometimes it isn't. And so that's, uh, boils down to huge delays, red tape that's involved. So a particular First Nation that says we want to do a particular development, we've got a partner that wants to do a venture with us. They get involved in those discussions and they go through the Indian Act process and that development may well be shelled Because after a couple of years or sometimes longer, the joint venture partner says, I give up. I cannot proceed. We've got to move on elsewhere. Now, with this land code process, you don't have that red tape. The First Nation can develop its laws, its procedures to ensure speediness, to allow for the speed of business to occur. It can have a, a voting process internally with the First Nation community if it involves lands in common. It could have processes that are set up that can actually deal with it in a matter of weeks or a few months, as opposed to years and perhaps never. And we've got all kinds of examples throughout Canada where you've had First Nation developments stymied because of the red tape and the bureaucracy that the Department of Indian Affairs, that whole process under the Eighteen Act brings.
0: What kind of outcomes – you mentioned earlier that you've calculated a return, a high return on investment for First Nations that opt into the First Nations Land Management Act or the Framework Agreement. Can you tell me some of the outcomes that have gone on that you believe would not have occurred if it weren't for the First Nation having First Nations Land Management under the Framework Agreement?
1: Well, yes, and it's been demonstrated through uh, various studies. I mentioned earlier the KPMG report, for example. KPMG did a study of, I believe it was 17 First Nations that uh, they chose at random to look at to say, has the uh, land code and the uh, framework agreement uh, process made a difference to those First Nations? And the answer is a definite yes. Some of the examples are, are such that some of the First Nations who had uh, unemployment at various high levels there was a significant reduction in those social uh, assistance needs one community was reported to go down from a 67% social assistance dependency down to 5% in the time frame it was shown that more than 10,000 employment job opportunities for non members came into effect pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into local economies not only the local economy of the first nation but that money spreads to the adjacent to municipalities and other non-reserve regions. Benefits like administration costs to register land transactions reduced, and the average reduced an average of $500 by the First Nation compared to Canada's cost of more than $2,500 per transaction. Processing delays in a speed at the speed of business compared to Canada's months or years or perhaps never. These types of benefits uh, did a- And those findings, I I believe, are are very remarkable and shows the worthiness of a land code and the reasons why land codes are needed in this country.
0: Now, as you mentioned, the Framework Agreement and the First Nations Land Management Act is historic and one of the first, if not the first, to address self-governance with respect to land on First Nations. More recently, there's been a fair amount of discussion about something referred to as the First Nations Property Ownership. Can you give us some background about that initiative and, and what are your preliminary thoughts? How is it different and how is it similar to the Framework Agreement?
1: Well, my understanding that the First Nations Property Ownership Lands Act is a process that is to recognize that reserve lands would, in effect, not come under federal jurisdiction that it would become provincial jurisdiction and, as such, fall under the provincial regimes of province by province. And what is concerning with the First Nations involved in the land management process under Section 9124, and as I understand it with First Nations uh, majority, the vast majority of First Nations in Canada, is that they do not want to have the jurisdiction uh, from the federal, uh, domain switched over to a provincial domain, fee simple or not. Fee simple was proposed to the French Agreement First Nations back in the mid 1990s and it was promptly rejected. It was rejected with very, very careful consideration, however, in the, in the fact that First Nations see the responsibilities of reserve lands falling under the 9124 jurisdiction so that laws have been clearly stated as far as the land codes are in place that provincial governments do not have a say nor do they have lawmaking capacity over the First Nation. Once you get into fee simple and registration of of lands, First Nation lands in the provincial registry system, then that brings into place the provincial laws of registration so that is a quite a serious concern it's something that has been vastly rejected by uh, almost unanimous consent there's only a handful of first nations in that i know of in canada who are supporting the uh, the first nations property ownership plans uh, proposed legislation and it's something that's firmly rejected by the vast majority clearly
0: Now, one thing I'm uncertain on is the proposal to transfer to the province or is it to transfer the underlying legal title to the First Nation? Well,
1: the proposal under the property ownership legislation is such that it would transfer the lands to the ownership of the First Nation. But having done so, the lands would then be registered in the provincial system, not the federal system. There isn't a process federally that allows for lands to have fee simple ownership. It doesn't exist. Uh, we've discussed the issue with many legal counsel. And from my understanding, from the legal counsel's rationale and reasoning, there isn't anything in the Constitution that really properly allows that unless you somehow get it over into the provincial domain. So that's what's been firmly rejected.
0: Well, I think we're coming to the end of this interview. It's been very informative for me, and I appreciate it. Is there anything ongoing or anything that you think that you would like listeners to know about or to be aware of that, that you would want to discuss that we haven't discussed already?
1: Well, I think the listeners, and, and that would include the Government of Canada, I believe that with the demonstration and the proof that there can be very fine returns that can be um, created by the investment into the land management process, that Canada has to really seriously consider that in the long term, It would be well worthwhile for Canada to invest in First Nations to allow. Right now we have, I believe, 83 First Nations on the waiting list. They're waiting patiently. They want to be involved. I receive telephone calls. uh, I receive letters continuously asking when they can be involved. And if Canada could recognize that very simple request and to understand, and I believe that there is that understanding that is taking place now, that by investing in First Nations in the land management process, we'll give a return not only to the First Nations, but to the local economies, uh, provincially and nationally. And I think that's something that really has to be really understood. And I think that we will see dependencies by First Nations be such that they can be self-sufficient, and I think that's the goal to the future, and that's the wishes of First Nations across this country.
0: Chief Robert Louis, thank you so much for discussing the First Nations Land Management Act and the Framework Agreement with me today, and appreciate that, and good luck in all your efforts.
1: Thank you very much, Brady. It's been a pleasure to be part of this interview.
0: Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.